Thanks, Drew, and thanks to Shane for stepping in last minute, help with the uh, sound and lyrics and take care of those things. All right, if you would, open your Bible to Leviticus chapter 12, and I'm afraid they got moved. Anybody get a half sheet, a note sheet? Note sheet, no note sheet. I had them set out in the back. Ah, they were moved. Someone was being helpful. Too helpful. Uh, They moved them. All right. We're going to deploy people. Pass them out. Make it happen. There we go. No good deed goes unpunished. We had those things laid out, and then they got... (laughs) That's all right. Hey, while those are coming around, you can have a, a copy of what we're looking at tonight from Leviticus I want to give you a quick update on something that the last two days have been the annual meeting for the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. So our church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which means we partner together for mission work. Uh, We partner together to provide seminary training, and then we partner together for a lot of other things like disaster relief ministry, ethics and religious liberty issues, a lot of things like that. And so that exists on the local level. We're part of a local group of churches around Norman. It exists on the state level, and it exists on a national level. And so the last couple of days, we had the meeting for Baptist churches in in Oklahoma. A couple of things about that. If you did not grow up in a Southern Baptist church, or you haven't been around Southern Baptist church world, There is a major misunderstanding that happens that the people at the state and national level are over the local church or provide direct direction to the local church. The people at the state and the national level actually work for us. Uh, We don't work for them. So the beauty of Baptist life is that every local church is independent in the sense of providing its own governance. That's really good because we can make decisions for ourselves. That's really bad at a local level because if the train goes off the track, there's nobody with the governance to to push it back on the track, uh, which is why you can end up in some interesting situations in, in Baptist life. But the beauty of that is that churches get together and say, you know what, if we put our money together and our resources and our people we could do a lot more together than we could do if we were just independent. And so that's where you get things like local associations, state conventions, national conventions. So in your mind, don't think that there's an office in Oklahoma City that tells us what to do. The local churches um, are, are over that. And so the beauty of that in Oklahoma, the beauty of that in Oklahoma is we have leadership that understands and respects and supports that. And you get into, I don't, like I said, I don't know all of your backgrounds, but you get into things like denominations and the political work can become pretty frustrating uh, early on. And you can get, and we have such a gift in Oklahoma, the way things work, the way people work together. It's not perfect, but it is really, really healthy. Um, and so the meeting the last couple of days at First Baptist Edmond has been, has been great. Um, just seeing the way the Lord works, the way the, way the Lord brings churches and, and people together. Last night at First Baptist Edmond, 
they had a huge Oklahoma foster care and adoption rally. Russell Moore, who you may have read some of his books or heard about Russell Moore, uh, he came in and spoke. But the people who I talked to from Emmaus that went to this foster care rally last night just came back so excited about the opportunity, overcome by the challenges that exist with foster care in Oklahoma, but just the importance of the church leading the way in caring for these kids and, and families. And so that's right at the front of what we want to do at Emmaus, what we're thinking about at Emmaus, how we can best do that as, as a church. And so if you get a chance and want to go back and watch that, I think they were, they were live streaming it on Facebook. So that video should be archived and, and be able to go back and watch it some way. But it, it's pretty exciting to see what's happening um, at the... Uh, at the state level and among churches and pastors. So I want you to be encouraged by that. I know we live in a day, partly our own fault, where you say Southern Baptist and the connotation people pick up is not particularly good sometimes. And, and I recognize that. Um, I want you to be able to say, you know what, we, we have some challenges. Sure we do. But there's a lot of good things happening too. Um, so I want, I want you to be encouraged I want you to feel good about that. And the good thing about Emmaus is we're not out there promoting being Southern Baptist. We're not embarrassed by that. I really value that. I think it brings a lot to the table. But we're not trying to press Baptists. <laughs> we want people to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Like that's at the front of, of what we're doing. And so if being Southern Baptist helps us do that, we'll do it. If it gets in the way, we won't do it. But I think it helps us. I think it allows us to do that in some, some really powerful ways. So um, I say that just because I came away from the last two days really encouraged uh, about, about what's happening and, and glad for what God's doing here at Emmaus. Uh, the national president for Southern Baptists, he came and spoke to our young pastors group this, this week. And same situation there. His name is J.D. Greer. If you see his name show up in the news at some point. Man, he just did such a good job speaking into the lives of young pastors, talking about the, the work of, of the convention. And so uh, the direction that, that I think we're going is, is good. So, all right, I went on about three minutes too long with that speech. But nonetheless, what did you know about it? So, okay, Leviticus chapter 12. Whew, I needed to talk probably like 10 more minutes about Southern Baptist life, so I didn't, because <laughs> the, the topic tonight is pretty hard. Uh, what else do you want to know about Southern Baptist life uh, tonight? All right, we covered chapter 11 a few weeks ago, so here we go with chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his, foreskin, his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Verse 7, 
He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Um, what's going on here? So Leviticus has been setting the stage where you have the different offerings, different sacrifices are explained. The five major sacrifices are explained at the beginning of the book. Then you have the establishment of the priesthood, the establishment of worship before the Lord that's supposed to be characterized by purity and holiness. Chapter 10 tells you what happens if it's not characterized by purity and holiness. You see God's judgment uh, poured out there on a couple of priests that said, we'll do things our way, and, and they were judged immediately with, with death. 11 through 15 in Leviticus is about clean and unclean laws in regard to the body. Now this might seem small, but, but there's something to it here. So 11 through 15 have to do with the body and holiness. This means that holiness is about everything that we do. So what, what's being shown to the people here is holiness is not something that you can separate from the rest of your life. Holiness impacts what you eat. Holiness impacts the birth of a child. Holiness, we're going to find, impacts your skin and your house and everything literally that comes out of your body is impacted by the idea of holiness. We talk about it all the time, but we're still tempted to do it. We're still tempted to put holiness is what happens when we, shows up at the, we show up at a church service, and then we have the rest of our life. just doesn't work like that. All of our life should be characterized by holiness, everything that we do. Chapter 11 was about what you eat. We covered that already. Chapter 12, we get into this idea of purification after childbirth. What's going on here? Look down in verse, one, or verse 2 again. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. I know this is hard to do. I know this is hard to do, but in your mind, you have to make sure that unclean doesn't equal sinful. All right? So in verse 2 there, where it says, She shall be unclean seven days, what do some of the other translations do with unclean? Instead of unclean, what, what else is, is used there? Is it all unclean? Wow, that's fascinating. I so all, all the translations are, are the same at that point. We hear unclean and we think she did something wrong. No, she did something really great. This is celebrated among the people of God that this woman has, has given birth. This is a time of celebration, but it says that she's unclean. She's ritually unclean. She hasn't done anything morally sinful. We, we put those two together because of, of living under, under the time of Christ, and so often those two are, are tied together. But for these people, there was ritual uncleanness, a state of being unclean, and there was morally sinful. Now, on your best days as a parent or grandparent, when your kids go outside and you don't hear from them for a while, and silence that starts out to be a good thing turns into, oh no, 
Like, I know they're in trouble. I know they've not done, done something well. Before I was a parent, I thought silence among kids was a good thing. And then I realized, no, it's actually terrifying when, when they're all quiet. And so then they come back to the house, and they're just completely covered in mud, and everything about them is, is dirty. You're not going to let them just immediately walk into the house at that point, but you're also going to realize they didn't do anything morally sinful, M- maybe. Maybe. You don't know exactly how they got dirty, but you're going to see they were just playing and having fun, and they're dirty, so they can't come into the house. They've got to clean off. It doesn't mean automatically that they did anything wrong. That's a little bit of a way to help understand the difference between sin in this situation and uncleanness. So the woman here is unclean, which means that she can't come into the sanctuary. She can't participate in the worship. Why? Why can she not do that? A couple of things are going on here, probably, and, and there's a good bit of debate about these verses, why she can't do that. Most likely, it's two things. Number one is the only blood that belongs in the temple of God is the sacrificial blood of an animal. By not allowing the woman who's just given birth to go into the temple of God, it's actually a protection of God's people about any human blood coming into the temple specifically and this is really important in the ancient world no child blood because you realize there's some ancient religions where child sacrifice might have taken place and i know it doesn't look like it on first glance but this prohibition this this regulation that's given here in leviticus 12 is actually a protection for the people of god about realizing you don't bring any type of human blood into the temple especially a child's blood and so it's, it's actually upholding the dignity of, of life in this sense of this woman who is unclean after birth doesn't come into the temple, into, into the sanctuary. The other thing that's probably represented by this fact is realizing that when we are born, we are born into a sinful world. That when we are born, we are born as children of Adam, as Romans 5 says. We're born as children of Adam and Eve, so we're born into sin. And so there needed to be purification before even the woman who's given birth could, could, come, into the, uh, could come into the temple. Now you look down in verse 6. Oh, actually, let's talk about something else here before, before we go on. You'll notice that the time for having a male child, the time of of not being able to come into the, uh, into the sanctuary there is half the time as if you had a female child. Now, is this just another example in the ancient world of male children being preferred above female children? Probably not. There's two reasons, it seems, why the time for the male child is shorter. One is because on the eighth day, what happened to the male child? The child was circumcised. And so by only having seven days for that initial time of the mom's purification, it allowed her to participate in the circumcision ceremony. So kind of a a simple practical matter, matter there. The second reason that it was twice as long for a female child is because it was a way of anticipating that female child's later possibility in life of also being a mother. And so because there was the possibility that this female child, this, this baby girl, would grow up one day to be a mother, 
the purification time was twice as long because it was both for the mom and anticipation of this little girl one day being a mom as well. So it's working both ways. One, so the mom can participate in the son's circumcision. And two, because there's this looking ahead that, hey, this little girl might one day be, be a mom. Um, it's when your sweet little toddler, your little girl says, oh, I can't wait to be a mom one day. And you're like, oh, let's slow down. Like one, one step at a time here. But you're, you're anticipating that coming one day. And so it, it, it was a preparation for that. Okay, let's look in, in verse 6 just, just for a minute. When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, so there's no different sacrifice for a son or daughter, it's just length of time, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So there's a burnt offering and a sin offering. Are the translations the same there? Do all translations say burnt offering and sin offering? Or anybody do anything different? Okay. Now, once again, you have sin offering. You're like, well, what, what type of sin has the, has the wife committed here? Well, once again, none. Other than realizing that with the coming of life into the world, again, we're, a, we're, we're come face to face with the reality that all of us are born into sin. Plus, and this story is just is too good to, to pass up. Um, so the Old Testament, as it was being written, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament, but for the Jewish people, they call it the Hebrew Bible, their Bible, the scriptures. As they were being written, commentators, uh, commentaries would be written about it, almost like we would think of as, as modern-day commentaries. Commentaries would be written. And the commentators really struggled, the Jewish, early Jewish commentators really struggled why there would be a sin offering. Um, at this point. What has the woman done wrong? And one of the commentators, I kid you not, it is, it is written down, says the reason the wife has to offer a sin offering at this point is because at the time of birth, the pain is so great that she swears at her husband that she will never have sex again. Um, and that in that moment of swearing, that she has committed a sin, and so when that child is born, she has to offer up a sin offering because of what she said to her husband at the, uh, at the time of birth. Not making it up, 100% true that that comes out of one of the early Jewish commentaries uh, about this situation. So take that for what it's worth, but uh, that's what is there. So there's this reminder here that, that we're born into this world of sin, but that God provides purification in that situation. Okay, chapter 13. So that's the purification at childbirth, realizing the need for all of us to have that healing and, and purification, even from the, the time of, of birth. 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease, which could be a lot of different skin diseases, not necessarily just one particular, but, but a leprous disease on the skin of his body. Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of the body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. 
Now, if you just give this a quick glance, you can see that chapter 13 goes on for a while. <laughs> it goes on uh, about what to do with these skin diseases. You get all the way down to 14, chapter 14, and it continues to go at this point. With chapter 14, the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 1 saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of the leper's disease is healed in the leper's person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. And he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Okay, let's stop there just for sake of where we are in the, in the process. Interestingly enough, you're actually going to find a little bit of a parallel between that and what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks about the Day of Atonement ceremony in chapter 16. But what you have in 13 and 14 is how do you deal with impurities or uncleanness on your skin. What's going on here with this idea of leprosy or this idea of the, of the leprous diseases? I put on your notes there uh, something in regard to skin diseases. If you look under chapters 13 and 14 on that, the back of that note sheet, but it talks, it, it relates to the idea of the deterioration of the body through the disease related to sin. We know that one of the effects of sin is that our body deteriorates, that it's susceptible to disease, it's susceptible to infection. We get frustrated with our body because it deteriorates and it's susceptible to disease and it's susceptible to infection. But we also know that what happens on the exterior of the body is not the most important thing. That outward, 2 Corinthians 4 says outwardly we can be wasting away but inwardly we are being renewed day after day into a glory that we can't see right now but will one day be revealed. And so there's this outward impurity, this outward deterioration, but inwardly we are being made new. What's most interesting, though, and what, what you all realize quickly is the way Jesus dealt with those who had leprosy, the way Jesus dealt with those who had skin disease. Turn over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. Because as much as we look there at Leviticus 14, 13 and 14, we know that all those sacrifices are ultimately pointing us to head, ahead to Jesus, what he would do, what his sacrifice would provide in cleansing us. That it's not just about having good skin, it's, it's about having a right heart, that there's something else going on here. And that no, with Jesus, no longer would these outward forms of impurity be something to cut us off from access to God. And so what does Jesus do with those who have leprosy? Matthew chapter 8. When he came down, this is verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
I know we read a verse like that in the New Testament. We read it lots of times. But when you read it in light of what the people had to deal with in Leviticus 13 and 14, and you realize the audacity of this person's faith just to walk up to Jesus and say, you can make me clean. It's not these other things I have to go through. You're able to set me right. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. What is so crazy in verse 3 there, if you know a little bit of the background, what's so crazy about Jesus touching the man right here? What's that? Yeah, you didn't touch someone who was impure. Because what would that do? It would immediately make you impure. But Jesus goes out and lays a hand on this man, touches him and says, I will, I want this to be the case, be clean. And immediately, there's no waiting period, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Show them that the power of God has, has come among you. And so when you see the step from Leviticus 13 and 14, and all the rituals involved with the leprous impurity, and then you see the way that Jesus performed these miracles of touching and cleansing, it should give you great confidence about Jesus' work in your own life. <laughs> because let's be honest, we come with a lot of impurities, we come with a lot of uncleanness, we come with a lot of sin, and he doesn't say, get yourself cleaned off and then come to me. He reaches out, he touches our life, and he says, I will be clean. I, I desire for you to be clean. And so we tell people this over and over and over again, but we still get lost in it. You don't have to get your life together. You don't have to get your life clean. In fact, you can't get your life clean on your own, but when you come to Jesus, he reaches right into that junk. He reaches right and he touches that leprous spot and says, be clean. Now, what does that have to do for our lives? Well, there's something interesting that happens in the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. We talked about this with the teenagers a little bit last Wednesday night when Jaron was in here with, with you guys, but Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look in, in verse 10 in just a second when you get over to Hebrews chapter 13 toward the end of your Bible. Now, as you're going to Hebrews 13, remember that the book of Hebrews is all about how the sacrifice of Jesus, both as the high priest and the sacrifice, begins to set aside, do away with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so you see Jesus coming to fulfill all those sacrifices and all those laws Hebrews chapter 13, look in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have access to, to God's grace. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. This is talking about how, how sacrificial systems work. So Jesus also, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, there's that word for make holy, in order to make holy the people through his own blood. So how are we made holy? It's through the blood of Jesus 
that was offered outside the camp. This is based on that idea of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross, being crucified on the cross outside the city. So it was outside the camp, outside the temple and, and the usual place for the sacrificial system. He sanctified the people through his own blood. 13, therefore, if that's true, so if we believe this about what Jesus did in relation to Leviticus and what he's done in relation to the sacrifices, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The guy who was my... uh, Main professor, when I was doing the Ph.D. program uh, at New Orleans, who was my main professor, his expertise was in Hebrews. And he really felt that Hebrews 13.13 was the culmination of, of the entire book. Here's why he thought that. Because when it says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What happened outside the camp? Who lived outside the camp in ancient Israel? The unclean. Where did the lepers go? Outside the camp. Where did you go when you experienced impurity and uncleanness? You went outside the camp. Jesus is saying that those who follow him, that those who experience his holiness, they don't wrap themselves up in the cleanest, holiest place. If you've experienced the holiness that Jesus provides, It drives you to go outside the camp. To whom? To those who are unclean? To those who are dirty? To those who are forgotten? To those who are ostracized? The driving force of experiencing the holiness of Jesus is not that we wall ourselves off in a clean place. It's that we are propelled to go into the darkest, dirtiest, most dangerous places we can go because that's where the people are who need healing. Who needs healing inside the camp? They've already been purified according to the the old system. The people who need healing are those who are outside the camp. This is why Jesus says things like, I didn't come to serve those who are well. I came to save those who are lost. I came to save those who are sick. And so as the people of Jesus, as Jesus' people, where do we live our lives? Outside the camp where it's dirty, dangerous, and where people are hurting. Now, I will tell you, because your kids might have been in the area with the teenagers last week, when I told them to go to dark, dirty, dangerous places, I told them to get your permission first uh, before they go there. So, just want you to, just want you to know that. But I hope you catch the, the, the thrust of this. Jesus did his work among people who were unclean among people who were hurting, among people who were pushed to the side. As followers of Jesus, we're called to do our work in the same place. That's going to look different for all of us based on, based on where we are. But it does remind us that our job is not to hold ourselves up where it's clean. It's to go where God has gone himself to those who are hurting and in need of that salvation. All right, let's go back to Leviticus just for a moment um, so we can... We can wrap this, uh, wrap this part up here. Because I don't want you to misunderstand what I just heard. In this next part, I'll make sure that doesn't happen. Plus, I strategically only allow myself like two minutes for this chapter 15. So, uh, partly on purpose. 
the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 15, verse 1. So Leviticus 15, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Well, there you go. And so, for the rest of chapter 15, you learn about the different discharges that can come from the body of a male and a female, and how these make us unclean. Skip down to verse 31. You're more than welcome to read the verses in there, the word of the Lord as well, all the verses in, in the middle there. Verse 31, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Now, what's the point here? What are we trying to do? We just talked about how the people who follow Jesus will go outside the camp to places where people are impure, where it's dangerous, where it's dark, where it's dirty. We will go there. But we will go there, this is so crucial, we will go there as people who are committed to living holy lives. And this is the tension, right? Go to where it's hard. Go to where it's dangerous. Go to where the people really need Jesus. And yet at the same time, commit to separate yourself from sin and to live a holy life. And, and there's, there's the rub. Because generally we do one of two things. Either we say, I'm really committed to living a holy life, which means that I can only interact with people who are clean and who are like me and who are safe. Or, yeah, I'll go to where people are struggling because secretly I, I kind of want to participate too. Um, I'm kind of drawn into that temptation. into that. So you go to where it's hard, and then you find yourself going off the range in terms of how you live, or you huddle up where it's really easy just so you'll be clean. As Jesus people... We're called to live in this tension of go to where people need the gospel, go to where it's hard, dangerous, dirty, and as you go, live in holiness. How do you do that? You do that with the church. You need people around you who are prodding you, saying, hey, maybe we're a little too safe. Like, let, let push ahead. Then you need that same person coming along saying, oh, brother, watch out. <laughs> Like, watch out that you don't fall into sin. Watch out that you're not, you're not drawn away by that. We need each other to force us into hard places, and we need each other to drive us toward holiness. And I pray that we can do that well together, and we do that because of what Jesus has done in and for us and the example that he set for us. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll wrap up. Father, I thank you that you have not called us to get our lives together on our own power because we never could do that. And God, you have not called us to wash ourselves clean because we could never do that. God, we are made holy. We are made right with you that sin is taken away and death is destroyed only because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And God, we are thankful that that happened outside the camp. That happened outside the city in the places that are dark and hurting because that's where Jesus came to find us. And so God, if we have experienced that salvation and we've experienced that holiness, let us not huddle together where it's safe and easy. God, let us not cut ourselves off from people who need love and hope and salvation. God, as a church, 
Send us to hard places. God, send us to people who are hurting. And God, let us go seeking to be light in those places, seeking to love people the way you love people. And so God, I pray that you would do that at Emmaus, that you would grow us to be a holy people, but a holy people who go to hard places. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.